Brexit means Brexit. An exit from Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and Notch is a great idea. Hello and welcome to Debate It. Uh, as always, I'm joined by my co-host Conrad. Hello. And this week we are joined by the assistant editor of the New Statesman and future leader of the Liberal Democrats, John Eldridge. Hello, John. Hello. I feel all I'm bound to point out I am not, have never been and never intend to be a Liberal Democrat. <laughs> this is a meme that has just got out of control and which I will never, ever escape. But yeah. Hi. How are we doing? Uh, great. Really not bad, yeah. Uh, so the main uh, discussion point for this podcast will be the Conservative leadership. What are your thoughts on the general makeup of the candidates so far? Um, actually, I'm in danger of... I, I should say I've got a terrible, terrible cold. I might be high on cough syrup right now, so I wouldn't necessarily um, rely on anything I'm about to say of like being that connected with, with reality. Um, but I actually, I think the range of candidates is probably broader than than I perhaps would have expected it to be. And that, you know, we are seeing, it's not just the kind of, you know, the hard Brexit brigade. We are seeing uh, I mean, we're seeing like people from from a different part of the cabinet. Like Michael Gove is obviously a Brexiteer, but he is like taking a relatively sane line of saying, "Well, you know, it is important not to crash the economy while we do this, so let's not rush out for an arbitrary deadline." You've got Rory Stewart going around the country scaring old ladies by introducing himself. <laughs> demanding they debate him um but he's taking very much a sort of you know a while one match tory line he's got no chance of winning obviously but you know he is he is in the race he's getting a lot of attention so i think the the field of candidates and, they, and there's still like what 12 people in there 11 possibly yeah, 11. The field of, yeah. um the, the field of candidates is probably broader than than i would necessarily have expected it to be balanced against that though is it's obviously going to be boris johnson so, you know, we all know, you know, we all know who he is and we all know what that means, even if we don't know what his particular line on anything is going to be on any particular day. Um, so so to an extent, the, the, the breadth of the field of candidates is a little bit meaningless because I, I, I think like Johnson is ahead of the field in a way that has come of a bit of a surprise, even though he was like the front runner. I don't think anyone necessarily would have expected that he was going to be quite as dominant as, as he is at this stage, just in terms of number of MPs backing him and so on and then the other thing to remember is that ultimately Britain's next Prime Minister is going to be chosen by you know about a hundred thousand we think Tory members largely elderly people in the Shires also a few young people um, not in the Shires as well but you know overwhelmingly that is the demographic it is not only out of tune with this country as a whole is out of tune with the Tory electorate so so this is why I think we're seeing um, people running so far to the extreme on Brexit, like pushing for Brexit options that were not even close to being discussed in the run-up to the referendum. It's now become like a shibboleth that, you know, if you are not sort of standing up and saying, well, I think no deal sounds like a pretty fine kind of idea, you've got no chance whatsoever of the Tory membership. And that is just kind of a result of the sort of the very narrow bandwidth of that of that electorate, uh, rather than representing you know, good policy or what may be the will of the country as a whole. So, um, um, I suppose to sum up, it's a, it's a mess, isn't it? It's great. <laughs> what do you think about sort of you've had a, we've had two candidates drop out already, James Cleverley and Kit Morthouse, um, and they've introduced rules to try and win over the field quicker. Do you think that's a good idea, or do you think it's 
it's it's possibly undemocratic to sort of force the 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 reduction of the field sort of after these people already sort of started to stand. Um, I mean, you know, it's not my not my party, not my rules. I I think there is a case for. You don't you don't want to be too short because you don't want a coronation. That sort of did it for Gordon Brown. There was never really any debate around that. I think the only person who even tried to stand against him for the Labour leadership in 2007 was, was John McDonnell, who was a much, much smaller, less serious figure then than he's, he's subsequently become. And he couldn't even get on the ballot. And that is, in retrospect, I think, widely seen within the Labour movement as a bit of an error because it meant that, you know, there was no chance to kind of, you know, debate the future of the party or or whether Brown was actually the right man for the job. So it kind of damaged his legitimacy a bit. There was sort of a, a version of that in, in 2016 with the Tory leadership as well, when, okay, you know, there was a contest, there were votes in Parliament, but Theresa May never really sort of had to present herself to the country. Um, and and that, because, because you know, led, she made it to the last two of Andrea Leadsom, who then dropped out. So, like, the, the, the membership never voted. It never kind of went to any vote outside Parliament. Um, and in some ways, that's a more sensible system. That was the way the Tory party always used to choose its, its leaders, of course. But the downside is it meant that Theresa May's weaknesses in terms of, you know, communicating and being able to sort of hear people criticise her or her government without glaring at them like she wants them to literally die in front of her um, did not did not emerge until the election campaign, you know, 10 months later. And I think it would those things would have been clearer a lot earlier if she'd had to fight a stronger campaign to get the membership on side. So there is there is kind of an argument for actually kind of having a full contest. But set against that, you know, the, talk, the, the clock is ticking. We, we are less than five months away from the latest in, in our whole series of Brexit deadlines. Um, we are still in the middle of a national crisis, even though, you know, things are not literally falling apart as we speak. There is business investment that is not happening because of the uncertainty. There are, you know, crises in the public realm and public services that are not being dealt with because the government doesn't have the bandwidth to bring forward legislation. So I can see the argument for not having an incredibly open-ended navel-gazing exercise uh, and, and trying to sort of winnow this field down to to some kind of reasonably sane number. And, and also, like, the, the two candidates who dropped out, Cleverly and Morehouse, both had, what, two or three MPs backing them. It wasn't, you know, they were they were not going to last long. They would have been out within the first couple of rounds. So it's it's sort of it's sort of hurrying up democracy rather than kind of undermining it, I think. It's not like these rules are going to be used to push out anyone who's a serious candidate. Um, you mentioned Rory Stewart earlier, and his campaign has attracted a, a lot of attention on um, Twitter and social media. How important do you think media campaigns for the conservative uh, candidates are given that this is basically going to be an internal election and realistically you're going to either have only a couple of hundred mps deciding it or a few thousand um, conservative members um i mean i think it's i i, I think those those two electorates are, have a very different attitude to the media. I think if it was just about the Tory party in the country, then I think, you know, media coverage might be a bit of a red herring because, you know, um, Rory Stewart's going to get nowhere with, with the, with the Tory party 
as a whole and it, it doesn't matter how many nice write-ups he gets from unlikely newspapers that's not going to sway anyone but uh, i think within the kind of uh within within parliament within the parliamentary conservative party i think yeah media positive media coverage is is going to be a big factor in terms of who they think of as a viable electoral uh, electable candidate um you know i think it explains uh, it partially explains why Boris Johnson is so far out ahead because he is, you know, if you look at his his ratings in the polling, um, he's not nearly as popular in the country as he was when he left the London mayoralty, let alone when he, he last won that election in 2012. Like he's, There's a hell of a lot of people with a terribly unfavorable view of him. At the anti-Trump protests, his name was being cited in the same sentence as Trump and Farage and even Tommy Robinson, and not just by people on the sort of the extreme left. Like he is now seen as this sort of slightly rightish figure a bit. Um, but nonetheless, I think one of the reasons he he... Uh, has such a lead is because he is such a big name and because like the media will cover everything he does um and yeah if you look at a a, a very different and much longer uh, election campaign selection campaign really um with with a, an unfeasible number of candidates in it if you look at the race of democratic nomination for the to to be the party's candidate for the u.s presidency next year where there's like what, 200 or 300 candidates in it by now but you know one of the big stories of, of that over the last couple of months has been the emergence of um mayor pete pete Buttigieg, who has come from absolutely nowhere to become this kind of national figure um and that is entirely because he 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 has a good story to tell and has been getting a lot of write-ups there are a lot of other candidates who started at basically the same sort of level of name recognition as he did who've got nowhere because they can't get that level of attention so so yeah i think media coverage does matter to an extent it matters in terms of defining who is seen as viable and it matters in in uh, telling the tory party within parliament who who might be an electable candidate they may be wrong about that but they're still kind of taking their cues from from the the media i think so you mentioned donald trump and um obviously he's he's been over here for a state visit um and there's been a bit of drama around his relationship with the Tory leadership contest and he's said positive things about Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt specifically um, do you think that will have any impact at all on the race or do you think it's just sort of something the media gets excited about but like people who MPs and, and Tory members won't really have an effect on them um, I pass slightly I mean I, kind of, I, I sort of instinctively think no in the something I think some of the write-ups of Trump's visit have got have got wrong is they kind of like there were similarities between the Trump election and the Brexit referendum in that if you look at the areas that you would have expected to vote one way but that swung towards voting another they did tend to be the same kind of places it's these sort of you know post-industrial towns where um, you know Basically, people people go away to university and don't tend to come back because there aren't graduate jobs there, and that has an impact on the sort of demography and the political attitudes of those places. They tend to be older, they tend to be whiter, they tend to be socially more conservative, and those tend to be the places that are either Labour constituencies that voted Leave, or in the US are historically you know blue collar Democratic voting areas that went for Trump. Um, they tend to look alike so there are similarities in those two elections but i think people have been 
over reading that and thinking that well the type of people who voted for leave therefore like donald trump and there's a few shouty people on the internet who see themselves as part of you know the, the new populist right or whatever it is who, who who maybe do make them comparisons but if you look at the polling everyone over here hates donald trump you know it doesn't matter where you are on brexit or where you are on the political spectrum he is incredibly and historically unpopular in just the same way that obama was incredibly and historically popular so i think some of the commentary around that like robert peston bless him um tweeted about you know maybe some of these anti-trump protests would be unpopular in leave voting areas of the north whereas i think if you look at the polling you know trump is hated in these places just he's hated mm. in, in in you know um, nice little cafes in islington he's just not a popular guy over here so it's difficult to see what what him embracing a candidate is going to do because on the one hand like you know he's sort of backed boris but that's not going to actually stop him getting it it's not going to be the kiss of death is it but that doesn't mean trump is is popular or his endorsement actually means anything uh, how effective do you think the protests from the left have been and do you think that um corbyn's decision to speak to the protesters was the right thing to do <laughs> Um, I mean, he's always going to speak to protesters, isn't he? That's kind of his natural milieu. I don't think there's... I mean, I I should confess up front, I haven't been following this quite as closely as I should have been. But I think my understanding is that what happened um, is that Corbyn's team spun that they weren't going to meet Trump. Uh, They were basically boycotting the state visit and they later emerged that Trump didn't want to meet him. Is that what happened? Yeah, yeah, that's what happened. Um, But nonetheless, even if that meeting had taken place, it is difficult to imagine a world in which Corbyn would not have shown up at those protests. You know, he just he loves to protest. It's just where he's happiest. It's, you know, it's. It, it, it's like me and walking through industrial estates. You know, some of it, <laughs> some people just like being in certain places. Um, so I don't think it's gonna. I don't think it's gonna affect anything one way or the other. Really, it doesn't. There's no new information there, is there? I mean, we all know that this is who Corbyn is and this is what he thinks. Um, but that doesn't necessarily tell us how he would con- conduct foreign policy were he to be prime minister at some point in the future. <laughs> So, um, moving on a little bit. So, as um, as we speak, the Peter Rabai election is currently going on, and it will have we'll know the results by the time this podcast goes out. So, um, I'm sure we'll be discussing that more in the next episode. But um, just on just in the general idea of what effect do you think the by election will have, depending on if Brexit Party win or Labour win or Conservatives pull off a shock. <laughs> um... or SDP. You know, that's that's kind of. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the SDP. The weird thing about the modern SDP is it doesn't seem to have anything in common with the old SDP. Like, the, the fact that they're drawing candidates from, from the bit of UKIP that's a bit horrified to find that there are racists in UKIP, but still really like Brexit, is, is confusing to me. But anyway, that by the by, um, I don't... I mean, the problem is, like, it is difficult to see a way that either major party is being sort of thrown off course at the moment. I mean, if you kind of look at the local election result or the European election results, you can make quite a strong case that the real story there was there has been, you know, the revival of the Liberal Democrats, the the surge for the Greens. There has been a swing towards uh, anti-Brexit parties. And that is... 
that that kind of makes sense. It's sort of something that I've been expecting in some form for a while because, you know, there was for a long time this weird disconnect between, you know, an incredibly impassioned anti-Brexit movement that could get hundreds of thousands of people on the street and six million people signing a petition and yet we're still going out and largely voting Labour, a party which has been going out of its way not to oppose Brexit. It did feel like at some point that maybe should break down. So I wasn't that surprised when it did. And yet that's had no visible effect on on the position of either major party at all. Like the Tories are still out um pushing for a much harder Brexit than was was talked about during the referendum campaign. But yeah, neither of the neither of the elections we've just had seem to have changed Labour's position even slightly. Like you can sort of imagine with the various of the forces acting upon it, Labour could go in a number of different directions depending on the the broader mood. But even though there are you can read recent events as being like actually uh, the pro-Brexit sentiment has peaked, maybe. Uh, there's actually now quite a lot of votes for Labour in Remain, and they're losing votes by not backing it. They've not moved in that direction at all. So it's difficult to envision what Peter could tell us that, that would actually shift the party. Like, if the Brexit party wins, then obviously Labour is going to be like, well, we have to deliver Brexit. But if Labour wins, I don't think that's going to adjust their position either. They'll be like, well, everything is fine. So I sort of think... Even though, if like, even though the Brexit Party are probably going to win and get into Parliament, it's kind of difficult to see it actually sort of affecting the narrative at all. Uh, regarding, um, obviously, uh, if they if they if they do win the by election, then this will have a sort of a a, a negative effect on uh, Labour. I just wondered what you thought about the situation regarding um, David Prescott and the suppression of the accusations against him or seeming suppression of the accusations against him by the leadership office. Do you have any particular take on that? Um, I'm going to wuss out of this one. I just haven't been following <laughs> closely enough to, and it's, it's quite, it's obviously quite contentious. Yeah. Terror. Um, so I just, I, I don't have an answer. I'm afraid. <laughs> so um, you wrote an article in May, 21st of May, um, about the throwing milkshake thing that sort of become sort of a, a thing now all of a sudden um, oh, yeah it made me very popular yeah so I've, I've got a few things I want to ask about that that article so you say in the article that um, that um, far right politicians want to normalise political violence but in the article you also kind of seem to defend sort of punching Richard Spencer now like I mean most people won't have any personal like for Richard Spencer you know he probably deserves being a punch but surely punching him is doing that normalisation and therefore doing the far right's work for them? I mean, a couple of things about this. Firstly, um, that article was one of a pair we ran simultaneously. There was also one from Douglas Dow um, arguing that, you know, milkshaking was a form of political violence. So I think it's important to kind of remember that, you know, it it should be seen in that context. Um, Secondly, I wasn't I wasn't arguing in favour of punching Richard Spencer. I was talking about why, um, even though, like, I don't like violence, I find the whole idea horrific, even despite that, I had found myself sort of enjoying those videos where people put him getting punched to music and and finding it, like, very slightly satisfying. And to an extent, not being able to justify that, even to myself. Like, I say as much in the piece that, like, you know, it is this is still violence. It's difficult to... To, to to really completely justify it 
just because I'm I'm having these conflicted impulses, it's still violence. However, I then pivoted to say, but milkshaking isn't. And I kind of stand by that because it should be seen more in the context of, you know, politicians have been getting rotten fruit and rotten eggs thrown at them since as long as there's been politics, you know, and that's not really about violence. That's about humiliation. It's being treated as if it's some weird new, you know, horrific new phenomenon. And it's not. It's just a slightly it's a variant on something that's been around pretty much forever. And it's not it's not really about the violence of it. It's about the humiliation of it. It's a way of making someone look silly. Um, and I, I just don't buy this as a thin end of the wedge argument because I'm much more concerned about the, 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 the thin end of the wedge represented by the normalization of what is essentially fascist discourse, you know, people talking about, hey, maybe ethnic cleansing is a thing we should talk about now. Or like, you know, I, I, I think that's just, I think that kind of hate speech is far more dangerous and far more hurtful to large numbers of people than, than one milkshake being tossed into someone's suit, you know? Yeah, yeah, I can understand where you're coming from. Um, I mean, what makes me sort of concerned about the milkshake epidemic is, like, when it's people like Tommy Robinson, you know, I don't be like like the man. I I don't, re- you know, and, and I admit, I agree that it's not the same as, you know, a punch or an actual physical thing. It's just a bit silly. But um, it's... I just don't buy the slippery slope argument. I don't yeah. think that... But, I don't think that leads to violence. I'm I think it doesn't lead to violence, but... Represented it's... by Tommy Robinson does maybe lead to violence, but I think, you know, I don't think the milkshaking does. But I think what we... Because what we've seen recently is, obviously, Farage was the a next level down, who's the, like a leader of a political party that won a recent election. And then we've also seen... Um, the Brexit Party activist outside the polling station, and we've seen. I mean, Trump's has he been milkshake though? I mean, that, there were a lot of Twitter threads talking about how that looked maybe like it was cherry yogurt, and how the splash pattern wasn't. And you know, it's. I, I'm I'm just not entirely convinced by that one. Yeah, we also but. saw the um, Trump supporter in the um, going to the protest recently in London. So, what I worry about is that it's it's sort of going outside the sort of people that everyone can agree is far right and going to just sort of normal people basically i i mean yeah i think that's a that's a that's a stronger argument i am uncomfortable with the idea of like you know targeting people for supporting something than i am with the idea of targeting um people who promulgate views because i mean if my if my justification for this is like you know if you are promoting hate speech you can't complain when someone throws a drink over you which i stand by it is difficult to argue that individual activists are promoting hate speech necessarily because they don't have the platform that that a farage or tommy robinson does um and i think you know attacking individuals is not quite the same as, as as you know throwing milkshakes of politicians um but nonetheless i just think there was a lot of ham ringing over not very much here and I am concerned about, like, it's Karl Popper's uh, paradox of tolerance that, you know, to to prevent incredibly intolerant movements from taking over, you have to not tolerate them. And I kind of think there's an element of this here. I think, like, you know, there are some things, you know, to defend free speech, we need to actually say that in very small cases, there are things you shouldn't say. You shouldn't say, actually, I think it's, I think we should be deporting the ME people back to the grandparents' country of origin. You shouldn't be able to say, I think we should be exterminating gay people. These are not okay things to say. Free speech has its limits. 
Uh, we're coming to the end of the podcast now, and I'd like to ask you one final question, John. Now, I know you're a, um, quite a fan of Doctor Who. I wondered, what are you hoping to see in uh, the next series? Oh, God, I mean, yeah, considering how much time and how much of my life I spent thinking about Doctor Who, I thought about this remarkably little. Um, so so uh, my issue with the last season is I absolutely adored the cast. I think they're wonderful. Bradley Walsh is a revelation. Um, I just didn't really much like the writing. I, Chris Chimnall has always been a bit of a, a slightly subpar writer for me. He's the new showrunner. So what I would really like to see, and this is terribly mean-spirited, is him maybe doing one more season and then moving on um but in terms of like i I think fewer episodes by him more by um interesting new writers like i think the the most interesting episodes of the last season were those written by people who were fresh to the series um like uh mallory blackman wrote Mm. the rosa parks episode and um oh i can't remember his name which is incredibly embarrassing because we talk on twitter sometimes but the guy who wrote the um demons of the punjab episode which was my favorite all seasons absolutely heartbreaking you know i would like to see more new voices in the series like that i think um um, and maybe the, the existing showrunner stepping back a little bit well, thank you for yeah, being on the. There you go. Do some. Do some. <laughs> uh, thank you for being on the podcast, John. It's been a pleasure to have you, and we hope that you might come on again at some point. Thank you both for letting me talk to you. You have a good day. <laughs>